We are in the book of Philippians tonight, study number two, chapter one, verses seven through 11, discerning what is best, discerning what is best, Philippians one. Now, what we have is we have an introductory paragraph in the original language. Chapter uh, one, verses three through 11 are one long paragraph called a Thanksgiving paragraph. So it's worth uh, our reading as one uh, block of uh, inspired text here. So why don't we do this? Let's stand, if you're able to stand with us, for the reading of 3 through 11 in Philippians 1. It reads this way. It says, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always offering prayer with joy in my every prayer for you all. In view of your participation in the gospel from the first day until now. For I'm confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. For it is only right for me to feel this way about you all, because I have you in my heart, since both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel, you all are partakers of grace with me. For God is my witness, verse 8, how I long for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. And this I pray, that your love may abound still more and more in real knowledge and all discernment, so that you may approve the things that are excellent in order to be sincere and blameless until the day of Christ. Having been filled with the fruit of righteousness, which comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. All God's people said, amen. amen. Father, thank you so much for the precious church family gathered here in this place, gathered in many Wednesday night services across the Inland Empire and across the globe and around the world. We do want to lift up our Ukrainian brothers and sisters tonight in the Lord, uh, those who are Russian as well, Lord. We just want to pray that that situation would calm down and that you would stop it, that you'd have mercy, Lord, and intervene. And we're just asking that your will be done on earth as it is in heaven Tonight, we've come to hear from you, Lord. So help me to get out of your way. Let it be Christ in me, the hope of glory. Christ in us, the hope of glory. Let us say like Paul, it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me and through me. And the life that I now live, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Thank you, Lord, for that. This is a wonderful family of believers. It's so precious to be together on these Wednesday nights. We don't want to take one moment for granted. We lay the time at your feet. May it be productive according to your glory and what you want to occur. In Jesus' name and all God's people said, amen. amen. Discerning what is best. I'm sure you all have questions about God's will. Do you not? <laughs> right? In a lot of different categories of life, we face seasons of life where it could be about you know, a lot of different things. It could be about relationships. It could be about a job. It could be about a lot of different things. It could be about a calling. Where do you feel called in ministry? How do you discern between what is good, better, and best? Well, we're going to share tonight in a section that's going to deal with some of those things. And there are going to be two mentions in the opening paragraph about the day of Christ. In verse 6, you'll notice that I am confident of this very thing. This is the verse we uh, left with last week, that he who began a good work in you, and it's a good work that he started, he will perfect it or complete it until the day of Christ Jesus. If you've wondered about that uh, phrase, that is the second coming of Jesus Christ. In verse 10, notice he says, in order that you may be sincere and blameless until the day of Christ. Two mentions of the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, which tells us that we are to live in light of his coming, whether or not that is his arrival in our lifetime, which could happen, or whether it's us going to be with him. Paul didn't know the timing of that, but he certainly lived against the backdrop of the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. And until that day comes, we are to do our best and discern between what is good, better, and best. And that's where we're going to go tonight. If you've been wondering in your own personal life between how do I discern what's good, what's better, and what's best? What is the best route for my life? The best 
a way to spend the years that are ahead of me or whatever season of life you find or whatever you know, wrap around the track you're on, whether it's the 10th lap or the 20th or whatever, wherever you find yourself. So Paul's gonna get to that and he's talking to uh, some of his early converts in Europe. In fact, Lydia was his first convert in Europe. We read the backdrop of the Philippian church in Acts 16. We read about Lydia down by the riverside, <laughs> Just a city right over here, that place of prayer. You remember that? And then we saw the servant girl who was demonically possessed, and she was delivered. And then we read about the Philippian jailer, famously, who said, what must I do to be saved? Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved, you and your household. We watch him clean the wounds of, the, uh, of Paul and Silas as uh, he has repented of his sin, and his whole house gets baptized. And we begin to see, and we talked about a little bit about the faces in the Philippian congregation and how there was a really tight bond between Paul and these folks and how they had supported him in the gospel ministry. The gospel is gonna come up multiple times. In fact, uh, I read a commentator this week that was saying that the gospel uh, per line is repeated more times in Philippians than any other New Testament book. So it's certainly a gospel-focused book. And you're gonna find a lot of application for your life tonight, and you're gonna see some of the most, uh, I would say, uh, sincere, deepest emotional language that maybe you're ever gonna see from Paul in terms of his love for a group of people. And I'll tell you this, I began teaching Bible studies in 1992. I've been on multiple mission trips. I've had the privilege of preaching the gospel in many different places, many different situations, I've had the privilege of praying with people the first time that they opened their heart to Christ. I've prayed with people the first time they ever heard the name of Jesus on the mission field, literally being the first person to ever say Jesus to someone else and explain the gospel. They had never heard it before. That, that is amazing to see people come to the Lord in all kinds of contexts, and it's been a great privilege. And for me, it's been 30 years of amazing ministry and thinking about faces, and, and for anybody who's done any time in ministry, it does come down to individuals. It does come down to, you know, remembering people that you led to the Lord, or you discipled, or you encouraged, or they encouraged you, or your faith was refreshing to one another. That's the church. This, there is a beautiful uh, fellowship that we share that's like nothing else that this world will ever know. And there's some language in here that talks about us being partakers of grace. Look at the end of verse 7. You are all partakers of grace with me, says Paul. Paul's not talking about giving them grace. He gave them the gospel. He's simply saying that we all partake of a common grace together that comes from God. See the word partaker there? It's, it's a word, su koinanas, and it's a, an extended form of the word for fellowship, and reading one writer this week, he said that you could say it this way, we are all fellowshippers in grace, or every time we gather, we bathe in the grace of God together. And how is that? Well, we're all saved by grace, but we also, when we open the word, when we open our hearts in worship, when we gather as a body, we are sharing the grace of God together. And it is like nothing else that you can ever know this side of heaven. Amen? Have you experienced it? It's the beauty of hearing your voices. It's the beauty of knowing your stories. It's the beauty of the diversity in the body of Christ. We all come from different places, but we all have arrived at the feet of the same Savior, the same King, the same goals. And that's beautiful, and that's really what makes us who we are. And so Paul has some really deep emotion and feelings towards this church. And before we get into his prayer for them, he says in verse seven, it's only right, it's only natural for me to feel or think, New King James, this way about you all, because I have you in my heart. In uh, the year 2000, I had the privilege of going into full-time ministry coming out of corporate America. And I had been ordained as a pastor and I worked in, in the corporate world for five years pastoring a church and then ultimately becoming the senior pastor of this church. And this is my, oh, I'm, I'm going on almost 25 years of being the senior pastor of this church. 
and it's moved around. And I did start when I was 12. I, I keep telling you guys that. I started when I was 12, just so you, in case you were wondering. But anyway, but I will tell you, over a quarter of a century, uh, the people of God are literally in my heart. You are in my heart. Um, so I'll try not to cry. <laughs> but I will just say that there is a tender affection. And there's a lot of personal stories represented here. I've had the chance to marry some of you and do your wedding. I've stood with you as we've you know, lowered the body of a loved one into the ground. There's been baptisms and precious times of worship and communion and you know, uh, sometimes watching people go through crises and walking with them through the ups and downs of this life and you know, some of the things that happen that seem so unfair. Ministry has such a beautiful uh, aspect to it and Paul says that it's only natural that I would feel this way about you because for Paul, you know, when he wrote to this church, he was thinking about faces that he had personally led to Jesus and then had a chance to plant a church and disciple for a little while. And uh, now they were supporting him after he had led them to Christ. They were supporting him. Look at verse uh, seven in the middle, both in his imprisonment this is his first Roman imprisonment, kind of a house arrest. But Rome, he was chained to Roman guards that would switch every four hours. So he wasn't in a comfortable spot, even though it was a house arrest. He said, uh, you're, you're in my heart since both in my imprisonment and in the defense, that's the word apologia or apologia, where we get apologetics, and confirmation of the gospel, you all are partakers of grace with me. Now, you can kind of see the trajectory of the text that Paul's not just talking about the common grace that we share as believers. He's talking about the grace we experience when we do ministry. So this is a further aspect of the beauty of having them in his heart is Paul knew that they were standing with him in his imprisonment, that they were praying for him, they were, they were financially supporting him as we saw as we looked ahead into chapter four last week. But they were also sharing the gospel with people around them and the church was growing and so Paul saw God's grace sprinkled or poured out on the common cause of the gospel as well. So our identity is a sharing or fellowshipping in grace, but we also proclaim grace to others, amen? And we try to get them to receive Jesus and to have the hope of eternal life and to become partakers with us in the grace of God. And so Paul is talking about their partnership in verse 7 in both his imprisonment and their support and in the defense, and this is where we get the word apologetics. I hope you're going to come to that apologetics uh, conference and confirmation of the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, perfect life, sacrificial death, triumphant resurrection, and ascension back into heaven. They were partners with Paul. And so for all of us, we could, we, we could say we've been touched by people. We've been able to extend the hand of grace. We've partnered in the work of ministry. Some of you go out and evangelize together. Some of you may strategically pray for one another in your jobs or your neighborhoods. You partner in the gospel, and that's a really precious thing. Yes. Amen? Yes. You're all partakers of grace with me. In Ephesians 1, 5 through 9, Paul wrote, God predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself according to the kind intention of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, which he freely bestowed on us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight. We're going to get to some of those ideas in a moment. He made known to us the mystery of his will according to the kind intention which he purposed in him. Ephesians 1, 5 through 9. And when Paul talks about the defense and confirmation of the gospel, just a couple of uh, ideas of the original language, the defense of the gospel could be that Paul knows he has a court trial ahead of us, or ahead of him. Remember, he's in Roman imprisonment, and so he was probably gonna have to face some Roman uh, trial situation. And later in the book of Acts, we read about times when he stood before governors and kings and so forth. So that wasn't going to be foreign to Paul. 
So his defense could be kind of geared more here towards a formal defense in like a court of law where he'd have to defend who he was and what he was doing in proclaiming Christ. That's a possibility. Others would say that the word apologia or apologia here would widen out to any defense of the gospel, whether it is Paul. Remember when we read at the end of the book of Acts where he was in two years under house arrest, but he had some freedom and people were coming to him. And from morning until evening, he was proclaiming the gospel from the Old Testament, uh, proclaiming that Jesus is the Christ. So that's also a defense of the gospel. So let me just walk this out for a second. Whenever you proclaim Christ... Make a argument for the hope that you have with gentleness and respect, 1 Peter 3.15. When you defend the historic gospel and argue that people should trust in Jesus Christ, in one sense, you're already an apologist. Not that you're apologizing for something. You guys know the definition of apologia is to make a cogent, rational defense for your faith, or as Peter puts it, for the hope that is within you, amen? With gentleness and respect, not forgetting that you are lost and you've been found. And so you share as winsomely as you can, but you share with boldness, of course, and confidence in the gospel and in the power of God. And so this is what they shared in, and he says in verse eight, Philippians one, for God is my witness. It's very rare for Paul to call God as his witness, but He's, he's calling upon God because God is the one who truly knows the inner, quoting another author here, the inner contours of Paul's soul or Paul's heart. Only God really knows what I feel deeply inside. Sometimes I can express it. Oftentimes we'd all maybe say we fall short of expressing how we really feel. Sometimes it's easier for some of us to write it than it is to speak it. Sometimes it's easier to pray it than to share it face-to-face, whatever idiosyncrasies you might have. But Paul basically says, I want you Philippians to know, because maybe on the receiving end, they're kind of like, why does the Apostle Paul feel this way about us? Does he really feel that way? And basically what Paul is saying is, I'm calling God as my witness. How I long for you all. Yes, Paul was Southern, y'all with the affection of Christ Jesus. I love you as if or as though, and I think this is reality, with Christ's love flowing through me to you. Don't forget who Paul was. Paul was imprisoning Christians when he was Saul. He was bent on destroying the church. He stood there and and threw literally the black stone and said, Stephen should die as Saul. But now as Paul, he goes all over the Roman world trying to win people to the hope of Christ. And he, he says, this love of Jesus that has changed me now flows into my life and out to others. This idea of affection here, literally means from the deepest recesses of Paul's uh, soul, literally the, the uh, Greek word here is from the bowels. <laughs> and what that simply means is as deep as you could describe something kind of metaphorically is where the feelings come from. Deep in the deepest recesses of my soul, we might say, I love you with the love of Christ. That's personal, isn't it? It's beautiful. And, and Paul is saying, God knows how much I love you. Now, people don't always know how much we love them, and so we have to try to share that. Some of you may struggle with telling someone that you love them. Some of you may have a more challenging time expressing your feelings. Maybe you need to write some things down. Uh, but Paul, in writing this inspired letter, says, I, I love you guys. Deeply, and God knows how deep the love is. God knew Paul's inner heart and inner life, but he expressed it. And uh, I want you to flip over to Philippians 4 for a second. Philippians 4, you can just see just, just another way he expresses it. The very last chapter, he says, Therefore, my beloved brethren, whom I long to see, what does he call them? 
my joy and crown. In this way, stand firm in the Lord, my beloved. Notice, this is where J. Vernon McGee got it. My beloved. Brethren, whom I long to see, you are my joy. You are my crown. In this way, stand firm in the Lord, my beloved. Hold your ground. Because you are my joy, you are my crown. This is an intense yearning. And the Apostle Paul not only yearns for these people, but he wants to be with them again. He wants to return and actually be in person with them again. He deeply desires to be reunited with this congregation. Just take a peek. Look at Philippians 1, 25 and 26 with me. Convinced of this, uh, that he was going to live on, which was more necessary for them. If you read the previous verses, we'll study this in a study of, ahead of us. But he says, convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith so that your proud confidence in me may abound in Christ Jesus. What's your Bible say? Through my coming to you again. Look at uh, the next chapter, 2, verse 12. So then, my beloved, 2, 12, just as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. And then skip down to verse 23. Therefore, I hope to send him, Timothy, immediately, as soon as I see how things go with me, and I trust, 2, 24, in the Lord, that I myself also will be coming shortly. Paul loved these people, but his deep desire was to be reunited with them in intimate fellowship. He expresses that, of course, through the letter, but it's his deep desire to be with them again. I'm going to pause here for a second, and I want to make a point that I want to make carefully, because I'm not looking to offend anybody who has legitimate reasons for watching us on a live stream right now. But I hope you can understand something. Paul didn't say, I hope to Zoom with you shortly. I know the technology wasn't there. He doesn't say, you know, I, I hope that we can video chat shortly, although we all appreciate that technology. He wanted to be with these people. See, there is something to being together that is irreplaceable with a screen. And I want to express my concern to you. My concern is that there's a group of believers that have now come under the impression that by watching a service on a screen, they are doing church. But I hope you can see just by the language of the Apostle Paul that that wasn't what Paul was looking for. Paul wanted to be with God's people. And there is a irreplaceable reality that in order to touch someone, to hug someone, in the, in the days that Paul was living, a holy kiss was the norm. You would kiss somebody when you, it would, and some of you are used to that in your families and others of you back away when anybody has that kind of notion. I get it. <laughs> but here's the deal. There, there was a, an affection in the Lord in fact, the idea in some parts of the world of the kiss on both cheeks, some scholars trace that all the way back to Jesus himself. They, they actually believe that Jesus may be the originator of the holy kiss and that that's where the church picked it up. And so they, they were very affectionate toward one another. There were holy hugs and holy kisses and and holding hands and praying and laying on of hands and uh, praying for one another. There was sharing in food. There was a intimacy like you would be, a lot of you guys would be with your own personal family. So it's unimaginable that somehow we would get to the point where we would think a screen would replace that. Now, there, there are going to be times when you may be sick or you can't physically get to church. And it's a wonderful option to have. And, I, and I, here's where I want to be careful. I have had many people tell me what a blessing the live stream has been to them when maybe they were taking care of a loved one or 
physically, they just couldn't get to church. And some people stayed away for obviously understandable reasons during you know, some of the height of COVID and all of that. We understand all that. Here's just my point. I hope you can see that what Paul is saying is that forsaking fellowship together is not an option for him and it should not be an option for us. We've got to be together, brethren. I think when we're together, we're stronger. Amen? I I think we strengthen one another uh, by being together. Now, I know that there is a power that goes out when uh, someone listens to a radio sermon or, uh, you know, takes in a service via live stream. So I'm not... I'm not trying to, you know, uh, be down on that. I'm just simply saying there's a beauty in fellowship that is so sweet. And if you are someone that has gotten lazy or someone where the live stream has replaced any personal fellowship you have with other brothers and sisters, I would just say, man, it's time to get back. I'm going to leave it at that. Now, Paul's going to move some of his personal sentiments and obviously inspired by the Holy Spirit into a prayer now for this church. And we're just going to go up through verse 11. So you'll notice here's his prayer. And I would tell you that this prayer may be a prayer that some of you have never prayed before. Some of this content here hopefully will inform the way you pray from this day forward. Take a look. And this I pray... Now, Paul's in prison. He doesn't say, pray that I would get out of here. Of course, he deeply desires that. But here's what he's praying. He prays for them, and he says, I pray first that your love, that's the word agape or agape, may abound or superabound, literally means to overflow more and more in two things, real knowledge and all discernment. If you have an NIV, it reads, in knowledge, I pray that your love may abound in knowledge and depth of insight. So now Paul, as he begins to pray for this church that he loves so much, here's his prayer. Here's the apostle Paul showing us what his priority was in prayer. And he prays, first of all, that their love would grow richer and richer and richer. And he, he uses a language that it would be flowing up to God and flowing out to others. It's, this love, you know, it doesn't mention an object here. It just says that your love may abound. But the object is, we can fill in the blank. We're told to love God with everything we are and we're to love our neighbor as ourselves. Jesus said, all men will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. As I have loved you, so love one another. This will be your main witness. So it's only normal that the apostle would pray that your love would abound, overflow, up to God and out to others. Amen? This is his prayer. For an overflowing flood of love in your life. I don't know If you pray like that, I don't know if you have a prayer list and one of the first things that you pray for the top people on your list is that their love would super abound, that they would grow deeper and deeper in love that goes up to God and out to others. If you do pray that way, that's a wonderful biblical prayer, that it would super abound in quantity, quality. It would overflow more and more. It would grow richer and richer And then the two things in knowledge and depth of insight. Let's take two, the two ideas. I'm going to give you a couple of Greek words. The word for knowledge is epinosis. Now, many of you have heard that the Greek word for knowledge is gnosis. It's G-N-O-I, excuse me, G-N-O-S-I-S, gnosis. And then epi intensifies the word. So gnosis in Greek is knowledge. There's Some of you have heard about the Gnostic heresy where they thought that you had to have some secret knowledge to be in the in club. It's kind of where this idea comes from. But here the Greek word for knowledge that Paul uses is an intensified form of knowledge. And here's what scholars would say about it. The word speaks of full discernment 
and refers to knowledge which very powerfully influences the form of one's spiritual life. Epinosis refers, quoting another source, to advanced spiritual knowledge. One writer says, all 15 occurrences of epinosis in Paul's letters point to knowledge of God and of Christ. Some have argued that the word is almost a technical term for the decisive knowledge of God or the mental grasp of spiritual truth. Yet, they would say, yet it is understood that Christian knowledge carries with it a corresponding manner of life. Paul says, I pray that your love would superabound, and I pray that you would overflow in epinosis, in a deep knowledge of the deep things of God. I pray that you would go deeper and deeper and that your love would flow out higher and higher. This does not call for shallow sermonettes producing Christianettes. This calls for serious students of theology, Christology, but just to simplify it, People who will sit before the word of God and say, I want to go deeper because the more I know him, the more I love him. In the Christian life, ignorance is not a virtue. If you are looking for the minimum to skate by, how sad it would be and how sad it is that we have fed the mentality in many evangelical churches of wanting to get people in and out. And we say things like this, well, you know, the modern mind can't handle over 20 minutes of information at one time. They will just, they will just combust. People all over your congregation. They'll be done. They'll be dust. Really? But they can go to the movies for three hours. Hmm. They can go to a ball game that will take probably all day to drive there, they'll put on the eye black, they'll put on the colors of their team. But don't preach over 25 minutes, preacher. Got people to see and things to do. And, you know, I didn't expect to come and hear the Bible. (laughs) And I'm literally quoting someone that a friend of mine talked to in this city who said, I I don't want to go to a church and hear the Bible taught for 45 minutes. (laughs) Woo! Well, okay. You can probably find it. I mean, if you don't want the word of God, but anyway. Epinosis is the knowledge that comes to the Christian through the study of God's word. It is knowledge that permeates speech, practical conduct, Wise and skillful living, it permeates everything. And this is what Paul is praying for. He's saying, Lord, I pray that these people would abound in love, these people that I love so much, and that they would have such incredible depth of knowledge of you, the triune nature of God, the gospel wisdom for living, how it affects your mouth and your moral life and your intellect and everything. I pray it would superabound. And that's why I ask the question, does this inform your prayers? It informs my prayers as a pastor. This is what I should be praying for the church. This is what I should be praying for you. Now, I know that you know, some of you are on the prayer chain and we get bombarded with so many different prayer requests, but I would challenge you to maybe start with a small prayer list and begin to pray that the Lord would do this in people's lives because this is what we need because what it will do is produce a depth of believer that won't be the shallow fickleness that we see out there that so often disappoints, but rather it would be a person Planted by streams of living water, bearing fruit in season, Psalm 1. This is Paul's intercession. And it's not unique. If you flip over to Colossians, which is the next book to your right, Colossians 1, just watch this once again in a prayer. Colossians 1, look at verse 9. Just a couple pages to your right. For this reason also, since the day we heard of it, 1-9 of Colossians, 
We have not ceased to pray for you and to ask that you may be filled with what? The knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom. Here we have the, the same ideas and understanding. Now notice part B of this. It's not just about knowledge. It's about wisdom. So that you may walk in a manner worthy of the Lord to please him in all respects, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. Now this is a prayer request. He says, uh, strengthened with all power, 11, according to his glorious might for the attaining of all steadfastness. That's gonna be the theme of our men's conference. And patience joyously, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. Can you see the, the once again, the, the trajectory of the prayer request is being filled with knowledge of his will, spiritual understanding, depth. Someone has said that wisdom is not just the application of God's knowledge in the scriptures, back to Philippians 1. Wisdom is skill for living. If you read Proverbs, that's what Proverbs is basically doing. It's, it's trying to teach you how to skillfully live, how to walk out uh, God's truth, God's ways, God's will. And so Paul is praying for them. He's praying that they would have epinosis. I told you I was going to give you the two Greek words. Here's the second word. It's the word discernment. Okay, let me um, spell it for you so that you have it. The word discernment is only here in the New Testament, used once. It's A-I-S-T-H-E-S-I-S. A or A-E-thesis. Aesthesis. And it is used 22 times in the Greek version of the Hebrew Bible. It's called the Septuagint. And all 22 times it means practical insight that informs conduct. So discernment here has the idea of knowing what to do or how to live. There was a gentleman that said he was at a conference and there was a 50-year uh, celebration for a pastor in South Korea and he had led a huge church and he was talking about how the process they, they went through in ordaining elders and he said they would test them in scripture, knowledge of the scripture, knowledge of church history and common sense. <laughs> and all God's people said, yeah. Because <laughs> let me tell you, if you are a person who's walking with the Lord, you will have something that seems to be missing in action today. Common sense. Because common sense comes from God, right? To do the right thing in the right situation, etc. The word that you see for discernment here means perception. It means uh, in the Septuagint I mentioned in Proverbs, it's what fools hate. And it comes, we get an English word aesthetic from it. Now get this, this word discernment is defined as pertaining to a sense of the beautiful or to the science of aesthetic. So walking out kind of one of the linking words. It's having a sense of the beautiful characterized by a love of beauty. It pertains to or involves and is concerned with the emotion and sensation as opposed to pure intellectuality. So it has the idea of a sense more than just uh, head knowledge. It's a directional word. Discernment is about direction. So here's what Paul prays. Let's put, put a bow on it now. He prays for deep, precise knowledge of the Godhead salvation, the essential truths of the historic Christian faith, and praise also for discernment on how to walk it out. That's a prayer. Amen? That's a prayer. And I'll tell you, this is a good prayer to pray for us. Um, one, one scholar puts it this way. He's talking about love and how this all marries together. And he says, in the definitive examination of love, uh, commenting on this passage in the New Testament's most profound and precise treatment 
about the influence of agape from the intellectual and moral point of view in this world and the next. It's kind of a partial quote here, but basically what he's saying, the scholar is saying, is that Paul here in the use of agape is giving us a window into the influence of Christ's love on the intellect and on the moral beauty of the world. Moral beauty comes from God. To wait on God's timing, to do things God's way, it does take some sacrifice, but there's a beauty to sacrifice. There's a beauty to understanding that Christ wants to live in you and through you. It is more love, more power, more of you in my life. It's a limitless abundance. It's an unremitting geyser of love to God and to others. This is R. Kent Hughes. He says, Our existential postmodern culture is very sentimental about love. We've heard it from the 60s on. All you need is love. Da -da -da. As if other directed goodwill is the answer to life. A modern proverb says love is blind, suggesting that blissful ignorance is part and parcel of love. Frank Sheed gave us a prophetic word for such foolishness. He says, a virtuous man can, may be ignorant, but ignorance is not a virtue. It would be a strange God who could be loved better by being known less. Love of God is not the same thing as knowledge of God. Love of God is immeasurably more important than the knowledge of God. But if a man loves God and knows a little about him, he should love God more for knowing more about him. For every new thing known about God is a new reason for loving him, close quote. Here's, here's the contrast that's being drawn. The world will tell you love is love, and as long as you love, then everything's cool. But here's the, here's the truth. Love must be directed in the right way. There's, there, we even have some laws that say, and these laws are being pushed more and more now. There's certain people you can't love. You know what I'm saying? Like underage individuals, for example. But people are even trying to push those laws right now. So love must be spirit-directed. Jesus was God's love uh, incarnated, but of course, we see what he did. He didn't approve everything. He uh, tackled hypocrisy and so forth. And so we can see this is Paul's prayer. Author's translation, just to sum it up, that your love may grow richer and richer in knowledge and all insight in order that you may choose what is vital. Another rendering of the verse we're looking at right now. Verse 10. To what end? We're winding down. So that you may approve the things that are excellent. Here's where we're getting our title. If you have an NIV, so that you may be able to discern what is best in order to be sincere and blameless, literally against the day of Christ. So that you may be able to discern what is best, verse 10 NIV, choose what is vital or essential, that's an author's translation, and be pure and blameless until the second coming of Jesus Christ, or what's called the parousia. If you have a new living, it reads this way, verse 10. I want you to understand what really matters so that you may live pure and blameless lives until the day of Christ's return. The New King James says to live in a way without offense. Now, just to give you an idea of what this language basically means, kind of building one idea on top of another, is Paul's prayer is that you would understand in your life what really matters. And I will tell you that over the years, I've watched a lot of people, unfortunately, figure this out way, way late. Do you know what really matters? Do you know what's really going to last when it's all said and done? Do you know what crown you're going to lay at Christ's feet? It's not going to be how much money you made. It's not going to be your trophies that are now probably in your garage somewhere. At least they are for me. <laughs> You know what it's going to be? You're going to lay 
You know what you're going to lay at Christ's feet? People that you influenced for the gospel. People are going to be your crown. If you want to check me on that, it's 1 Thessalonians 2.19. People will be your crown. What you will offer to God on that day is people. People that you influenced for the gospel. People that you led to Christ. They will be your crown. And so Paul says, I, I want you to understand. I want you to, takimatsu is the word here. I want you to prove out, scrutinize as if the testing of metals, testing what's really important, seeing the quality of something. The word translated discern in classical Greek refers to testing something or someone. Get this. It's a technical word for testing money to determine whether or not it's counterfeit. And it also occurs in a political context for testing of a candidate for office, political office. That you may approve, dakimatsu, that you would test all things and hold fast to that was true and good. Forget about the rhetoric. Forget about the other stuff and go to the substance of idea and life. And how someone actually lives. Not what they are squawking from a microphone. You understand what I'm saying? This is the discernment of a believer. Spilling over to every area of life. Because we know that it, it has to do with our relationships. You and I, Paul is saying, I'm praying for the Philippian church. I'm praying for the Coronian church. That they would know, that they would discern between good, better, and best by testing things, by using deep knowledge of God and his ways, and then test things in terms of leaders and quality of how I'm going to spend my life. What job am I going to do? Where am I going to spend the next several decades? If you're younger, I would challenge you to be thinking about that against the day of Christ. And to look at what's genuine, what's true. That you might be pure and blameless. Now the word blameless means that you wouldn't, you wouldn't be a stumbling block for yourself or anybody else. Paul's going to use a running analogy in chapter 3. And he's basically going to say, I'm pressing on. I'm running the race, man. And I don't want anything to stumble me and I don't want to stumble anybody else. I want to come to the end of my life and know if I stumbled anybody, hopefully that's a very small list and I've tried to remedy that. But I've uplifted a bunch of people. That's, I want to come to the end of my life and be able to sh say that to my Lord. That, but that I would also be pure. And let me just read something to you about purity. Or sincerity. Sincere is an English word based on the Latin word sincera, meaning without wax. In ancient times, the biggest industry in the world was the pottery industry. Pottery varied in quality just as cars or office supplies, quoting from uh, Boyce, or household goods vary today. The cheapest pottery, pottery was thick and solid and did not require much skill to make. It's found everywhere at archaeological sites. The finest pottery was thin. It had a clear color and it brought a high price. Fine pottery was very fragile, both before and after firing, and it would often crack in the oven. Cracked pottery should have been thrown away, but dishonest dealers were in the habit of filling in the cracks with a hard pearly uh, wax that would blend in with the color of the pottery. It made the crack practically undetectable when the pottery was held up to the light, especially the sun. It was said that the artificial element was detected only in sun testing which is literally the meaning of being pure or without hypocrisy or being unsullied. Honest dealers marketed their uh, pottery as sincera from the Latin, without wax. I don't want to be a waxy Christian. I want to be without wax. I want to be pure, unsullied. I want to be able to be held up to the light and be seen as sincere or pure. Not that we're not going to have our flaws, because we all know we're jars of clay, and the glory is housed in these jars of clay, and it's all of God. But the point is, to be sincere and blameless means we, there's a trajectory of our lives. And it is to be tested in the sunlight and proven sincere. And then the final prayer. Having been filled with the fruit 
of righteousness. We all know the nine fruits in Galatians 5, 23. Here's another one. It's called the fruit of righteousness. Some would say it's the fruit righteousness produces, but either way, it's fruit bearing, which comes through Jesus Christ to what? To the glory and praise of God. In John 15, Jesus talked about abiding. And he said, look, if you abide in me, you're gonna bear much fruit. Your fruit will remain and it will be to the glory of my Father. John 15, you can look at verses two, four, six, eight, and 16. It will be to the glory of God, my Father, and it will prove that you are my disciples if you abide in me. Final story. Lawrence of Arabia was in Paris after World War I with some of his Arab friends. He took some time to show them the sights of the city, the Louvre, the Arch of Triumph, Napoleon's tomb, and the Champs-Élysées. They found little interest in these things. The thing that really interested his friends was the faucet in the bathtub of the hotel room. They spent much time there turning it on and off, on and off. They thought it was wonderful. And they had to do, uh, uh, they had to turn the handle and get the water out. It's all they really wanted. So in the hotel room, uh, all these great, you know, architectural sites now just on and off with the water, on and off, on and off. Well, sometime later, when they were ready to leave Paris, return to the east, Lawrence of Arabia uh, found them again in the bathroom trying to detach the faucet. You see, they said, it's very dry in Arabia. What we need are faucets. And if we have them, we will have all the water that we want. Well, Lawrence had to explain that the effectiveness of the faucets did not lie in themselves, but in the immense system of waterworks to which they were attached. He had to point out that behind this lay the rain and the snowfall of the Alps. And then this writer concludes. He says, many people are living lives that are as dry as the deserts of Arabia. They have the faucets, but there's no connection to the pipeline. (laughs) Father, help us in our endeavor to walk with you pure and blameless against the day of Christ. Let our love be so abounding that it would be epinosis, it would be just with deep depth of not only understanding of you and your ways, but of discernment of how to walk them out, that we might approve the things that are best. You know, we have a lot of doors, good, better, best. We don't always know which way to go, Father. Sometimes it's confusing. But it would seem to me that the more we plumb the depths of who you are and seek first the kingdom of God and your righteousness, you'll add everything back to us. And maybe many of our questions are because we're focused in the wrong place. Help us go deeper. Help us have more discernment so we know which way to go. We know why we're going there. And the other things that maybe we focus on too much, you say you will add back to us. We love.